0: Hi everybody, it's Kevin, and this is the episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Now, unfortunately, my audio track on this one has a little bit of distortion that's really annoying, but I really wanted to save the interview, so I'm playing it anyway and cleaned it up as best I could. I also took the microphone cable that I was using and threw it into the street, where it was run over by multiple cars within a few minutes. I replaced it with a new audio cable that made the problem much less severe. Actually, it eliminated it, 100%. So I apologize for the quality on my side, but don't listen to me. Listen to the guest. They're more interesting anyway. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulton, I'm a professor and a science communicator who worries about your understanding about science and about some of the major issues in which new technologies can play an important role. And today we're going to revisit a episode we did last year We're speaking with Dr. Stuart Strand from the University of Washington Civil and Environmental Engineering Program, and we're um, going to re-explore his air purifying plants. So there's been some developments over the last year or so that uh, are really important. So welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Strand.
1: Thank you, Kevin.
0: Yeah, it's really nice that you're back because this was an intriguing topic to me. And maybe we need to start fresh for new listeners. But back in 2019, you talked about plants that could remove impurities from indoor air. And why do you think that this is necessary? I mean, is it really a problem?
1: Uh, Yes, it really is a problem. Uh, Our homes are contaminated with gaseous uh, uh, chemicals such as uh, benzene and formaldehyde and uh, acrolein. Um, chloroform is present in our indoor air, and these are all uh, either proven or uh, probable human carcinogens, so uh, these are important even at the very low levels that they occur in the home, mainly because uh, our most vulnerable populations, uh, children uh, and older people as well, uh, spend all of their time in the home and uh, are exposed to these chemicals continuously.
0: Okay, but where where do they come from?
1: Well, benzene uh, comes from uh, uh, fuel storage in attached garages, uh, lawnmower fuel, uh, gasoline. contains a lot of benzene, um, and it can get out of the tank even with filters in your car. Um, uh, benzene also comes from outdoors. It also comes from cigarette smoking or any kind of smoking uh, in the home. Uh, sometimes candles can emit it uh and uh, it, it's a proven human carcinogen. Chloroform is an interesting one. Uh, with chlorinated municipal water, chloroform is formed uh, from the chlorination process and uh, reactions with trace organic compounds in the water. And that chloroform, uh, which is a probable human carcinogen, uh, is emitted into the air when you use hot water in the home, like showering or, or washing uh um, procedures, machines, uh, emit chloroform into the air. Um, formaldehyde, a lot of people are familiar with that. It comes out of uh, the glues we used in press board and in carpets uh, and so on. But it also comes from things like smoking and cooking uh, in the home, too. So that, that's hard to avoid.
0: And do you think that our big push to have more energy efficient homes, you know, we're we're getting double pane windows and really good insulation around our doors and thresholds that don't leak. Has this just exacerbated the problem?
1: Uh, Yes, it has. And it's well recognized uh, to be a part of the problem uh, in that we don't have as much air exchange in a lot of the older homes uh, that we that have been retrofitted with uh, insulation uh, that we should have. There should be frequent air exchanges in the home, and uh, uh, even those, though, will leave some of these residual gaseous compounds.
0: Okay, so we, we have this problem of at least some level of uh, volatile compounds that are present inside of our indoor air that may be there in exceedingly small amounts but still represent some finite risk, and now you have a solution to help clean those out uh, just with uh, plants that have been specifically engineered to deal with those chemistries. So remind me again about the uh, first invention, which was uh, pothos ivy. Uh, what what is that, and how does it
1: work? Well, pothos ivy, uh, the Latin name is epiprimnum aureum. Around the trunk, it's a tropical plant. Many people have it in their homes. It's also called devil's ivy in some places, um, and it is very common. House plant, very easy to grow. Uh, it doesn't flower in the home, uh, so it's uh, less of a biosafety risk in the uh, ecology. Um, and uh, it is a house plant that is rare in the fact that it has been genetically modified. Uh, that's hard to do with, uh, with new plants, and uh, this one had that uh, uh, procedure already developed, so we used uh, that procedure to introduce our, our novel genes uh, into the plant.
0: <laughs> and I, I know we covered this last year when we talked about it, but just for the new listeners, what were the genes that were introduced, and what are the chemistries that they target?
1: Well, uh, we used the uh, uh, cytochrome P4502E1 from mammals. This uh, particular sequence is from uh, rabbit, although we kill no rabbits in this procedure. Uh, we just use the uh, genetic sequence of their uh, 2E1. And the cytochrome P450-2E1 is a detoxifying enzyme that all mammals have in our livers, um, and it can oxidize. These uh, slow molecular weight compounds like benzene, which is not a very heavy compound, uh, it can oxidize it to phenol, which changes it completely so that it's not carcinogenic anymore and it has a low volatility. It also completely degrades uh, a chloroform, converting it into CO2 and chloride ion, uh, and uh it will attack many other compounds that are present in home air but are not as important as benzene and chloroform.
0: Well, that's really interesting. So this uh, enzyme, is it particularly robust from rabbits or why did you choose that one?
1: Well, uh, we, uh, we figured that the, uh, that if we take this detoxifying process out from the liver and place it in the plants, then it will be able to, detoxify these chemicals before we even get them into our bodies. When the detoxification occurs in our livers, it's a high energy process and it forms these short-lived radicals that cause the DNA damage that lead to cancer. If this occurs in the plants, then it's harmless. Uh, So uh, this is what's called the green liver concept, whereas uh, in which we degrade these uh, chemicals in plants instead of in our bodies because that can sometimes lead to the DNA damage that we're trying to avoid.
0: I love this stuff. The green liver. You so you, so you you grow that you grow the green liver in in your home and it absorbs the air through stomates and then it goes through this detoxification process. Now, you have actually published data that show that it works. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about those experiments that demonstrated proof of concept?
1: Yeah, um, so uh, these were performed in small vials, about 40 milliliters, and uh, with small plants. And uh, uh, we compared the removal rates over time uh, by measuring the concentration of benzene and chloroform in these vials separately and uh, comparing those with the wild-type pathos. Now, a lot of people think that Normal house plants can do a lot of detoxification in the home, but I, I'm afraid that we don't share that opinion, uh, and in our experiments, we didn't see any degradation at all uh, by the, uh, uh, the uh, wild-type plants, the unmodified plants exposed to benzene and chloroform. Uh, and uh, the degradation was no different than an empty vial with no plants at all. But when we had our genetically modified plants, we had rates that were much faster. Within a couple of days, three days, the, most of the benzene uh, was gone and even faster for the chloroform. And we think we understand why previous experiments have shown, uh, have purported to show that wild-type normal plants can degrade these chemicals. I can go into that if you want.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, it just if you could give us a little bit of an idea on that, that would be wonderful.
1: Yes. So we've, we did a survey of all of the literature of house plants uh, and degrading things like benzene and, chlor- and uh, formaldehyde. We looked at uh, several different studies from different labs around the world over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, And we compared the rates from the different labs for the same plant and the same chemical. And we found that they varied by seven orders of magnitude. That is from the highest rate to the lowest rate was 10 million times different. So there wasn't any replication of these findings of degradation from one study to the next. So this isn't really science. You have to be able to replicate Uh, what one lab finds in another lab. Uh, And the reason for that, we think, was that uh, we're limited by analytical capabilities. Uh, So in a small experiment, we have to increase the concentration well above what the concentration of benzene or, or formaldehyde might be in the home. And there are bacteria in the soil. Soil was present in all of these experiments the bacteria in the soil will start to grow on benzene and formaldehyde. And they do that quite quickly. They also turn on their enzymes that normally are off when they don't see any of these chemicals at high enough levels that they eat. They, they normally have those enzymes turned off. Uh, but when they see high amounts of benzene, which for them is food, they turn on these enzymes and they start growing and reproducing on the benzene. And that's why we Think that they saw these degradations in these experiments with soil at, in small volumes at high concentrations. But those same soil activities could not occur at the low concentrations that are present in the home because the bacteria can't get enough energy from the low concentrations of benzene. And uh, when we did our experiments, Everything was sterile except for the plants. The old plants were the only living things there. There were no bacteria in our vials. And so we didn't see any degradation by the unmodified plants, only by the modified plants.
0: Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. In a way, there's some curiosity there because formaldehyde is a, is a naturally occurring molecule as part of carbon metabolism. Uh, and plants do have ways to deal with formaldehyde. And so is there any, um, is, is the rabbit enzyme just that much better where it catalytically just blows the one out of, you know, the, the plant's endogenous me- mechanisms out of the water?
1: Well, Kevin, unfortunately, we haven't been able to complete our formaldehyde experiments yet. We're still working on that. Uh, the uh, the first generation of our pothos did not have formaldehyde degradation. But the others have published formaldehyde degradation uh using transgenic tobacco plants that, uh, are expressing a bacterial gene for formaldehyde degradation. Uh, the, again, the bacteria are eating the formaldehyde and growing on it. Uh, but we take the one enzyme out of them and, and put the sequence for that enzyme into plants. And this one lab has shown that, that the formaldehyde is degraded by that, uh, Construct, but we haven't shown that yet ourselves. Although we do have pathos uh, that is modified with the bacterial formaldehyde dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme that oxidizes formaldehyde, and it oxidizes formaldehyde to, by the way, to the to the amino acid. Uh, sorry, the uh, organic acid uh, formate, which is harmless and not volatile. Um, you're right about formaldehyde being. Uh, a very common uh, uh, chemical uh, uh, in uh, in plants. Uh, it's part of their metabolism, and uh, but nonetheless, when we looked at the literature for formaldehyde degradation by wild type plants, we did see this huge difference in rates of removal from one lab to the next. So we're looking forward to our uh, our sterile uh, experiments with wild type formaldehyde. Uh, pothos ivy to see if we see formaldehyde degradation by the unmodified plants and to see if we can improve it uh, by the addition of this formaldehyde degrading gene from bacteria.
0: Well, very good. I I remember maybe last year, beginning of last year, I think we spoke in January. um, This was on the edge of being either deregulated or commercialized. Um, Where is it now?
1: Well, okay. Uh, Pothos ivy, we selected pothos ivy because it doesn't flower. And we thought that that would be uh, an advantage in getting it deregulated because it couldn't uh, cross with uh, with wild growing pothos ivy. And there is wild growing pothos ivy in the United States. It's in southern Florida. It grows outdoors in that semi-tropical environment of southern Florida. Um, but it doesn't grow in the northern states outside. And it doesn't grow in Canada, outside at all, in any part of Canada. So we have gotten regulatory approval in Canada for its sale and use. But we're still working on regulatory approval in the United States. Uh, We have done tests to show that it doesn't grow faster than unmodified pothos, and that it uh, doesn't tolerate cold temperatures better than unmodified pothos and that it doesn't resist herbicides better than the unmodified pothos. So we're going to apply to the USDA for an unregulated status on that, but we haven't done it quite yet. Um, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that there are other plants that would be of interest uh, in uh, detoxifying the air that also don't grow outside. Uh, in the United States and in fact one of them is a very common plant the tobacco plant So the tobacco plant really doesn't grow wild Anywhere in the US except there are some wild tobacco strains that are different than the normal tobacco plant that we use uh, have been used for uh, smoking materials for nicotine uh, and The crosses with those wild strains are sterile so uh, they're not a, a problem. Uh, so we're thinking more about tobacco as a possible plant for this use, and we can discuss that further if you wish.
0: No, no, we'll do that in just a minute. How are you protecting the IP on all of this?
1: Well, we have an interesting approach to that. Uh, one can get a plant patent on the, uh, uh, the, uh, the modified uh, plant, uh, and that protects the you from the the theft by others of the particular plant strain itself. But we have another approach in our second-generation plants in that we have included in the genetic sequence of the cassette that we modify the plant with uh, a genetic sequence that encodes a poem uh, that is copyrighted. Uh, so this is a little haiku about genetically modified plants, and it is encoded in a well-known uh, uh coding uh representation of the alphabet the english alphabet uh and uh we have this poem in our in our plants so that our genetically modified plants all contain a little haiku poem that is our copyrighted poem and so we think that we can prevent others from using our plants at all uh, by the fact that uh it has our original poem in it. And so I think we're protected under copyright law, just like uh, just like uh, auto, audio books are protected. Uh, the original uh, author of those books are protected, even though it's not in print on paper. Uh, we think that our genetically printed poem is also protected, protects our plants.
0: Now, can you recite a haiku or would that be... Oh my,
1: I was afraid you would say that. (laughs) Um, um, A plant embracing bacterial DNA, insert harmony.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that's really nice. That's really nice. Well, this is a really interesting approach. Um, I love the idea from beginning to end. We've got plants that are detoxifying indoor air of pollutants that are present and protecting them with poetry. Um this is the Talking Biotech podcast we're speaking with Dr. Stuart Strand from the University of Washington and we'll be back in just a second.
2: Would your participation in social media save lives? Early in COVID-19, we thought the world would finally gravitate towards science and evidence especially in response to a global pandemic. However, from national leadership to conspiracy-plagued internets, it's clear we're suffering from an information pandemic as well. Now, here at the Talking Biotech Podcast, we give you the information to battle disinformation around technology, as it applies mostly to agriculture and medicine. Information here allows you, the listener, to participate in broader discussions with confidence, helping to advance innovation to application. Today, all of us need to be engaging the copious nonsense that plagues social media, especially in the area of COVID-19. Crackpot claims, bad science and poor quality publication are only deepening the pandemic, at least here in the USA. Kudos to the rest of you. So this is a call to the science-minded. Identify who you can trust. Share their content on social media networks. Join the conversation. Gently and kindly refute false information. Remember, you'll never change the mind of someone unwilling to learn But the internet is a spectator sport. Become the trusted source of information to help those that don't know who to trust. Help them realize who to trust and make better decisions that could ultimately save lives. Improving the world with a simple act of kind communication. That's what the Talking Biotech Podcast is all about. And your participation has never been more important
0: and now we're back on the talking biotech podcast we're speaking with dr Stuart strand from the university of washington who has designed plants that scrub the air and remove uh, impurities that are present that can pose some sort of risk and has anyone ever talked about these kind of technologies for use in places like spaceships
1: Uh, We have considered that. Uh, The spaceships are high-energy environments, and uh, there are ways of of removing these chemicals with uh, uh, high-energy processes that might be more compact and weigh less. Uh, It would certainly be possible to modify food crops so that they could also remove these toxins from the air and degrade them so that the, the toxins would not be present in the food they Toxins remember, are degraded and destroyed and uh, uh, so that would be possible. We haven't pursued it for a number of years. We did have a uh, a NASA proposal back about 20 years ago, but it, we nothing came of that
0: that's yeah, that's right about when NASA kind of ran out of proposal time uh, they you know they used to be really excited about things like this. But I could, it totally makes sense. You're growing crops there. They could be scrubbing the air from an artificial environment that is loaded with electronics and other types of, uh, you know, funky emissions. And seemed like a good context to me. Well, this is great that you can do this with house plants. but, you know, there's the indoor environment, and then you have this whole outdoor environment. And the issue of climate change and gases that are present that contribute to it in a big way. And are there any efforts to do something like engineer crop plants? So You've got millions of acres of crop plants. Could they potentially do some good scrubbing of gases that are contributing to temperature increase?
1: Well, uh, agriculture itself contributes quite a bit of uh, an important greenhouse gas uh, to the atmosphere. Now, of course, plants and soils do take up carbon dioxide, and that's good. That's important. But under fertilized crops, or any crop really, uh, no matter what kind of fertilizer you use, uh, artificial fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers, or even manures and uh, organic fertilizers, nitrous oxide is produced. And this is produced by bacterial activity in the soil, nitrifiers, denitrifiers, uh, that sort of produce nitrous oxide as a waste product. We don't quite understand why there's always nitrous oxide production. But when you fertilize, in order to get high yields out of your crops, there's a lot of nitrous oxide production. And in fact, agriculture is the source of at least half of anthropogenic uh, production of uh, nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is a potent greenhouse gas that per molecule is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So it's a very strong greenhouse gas. It's been going up and up and up, just like carbon dioxide, as agriculture increases and other sources of nitrous oxide increase. So it's been suggested that we might modify uh, crop plants with uh, an enzyme called a nitrous oxide reductase, which takes nitrous oxide, which is N2O, and converts it to regular atmospheric nitrogen, which is N2, that has no greenhouse effect at all. So it's a, would, if we could get that to work in plants and in root systems, we could prevent any nitrous oxide production from that crop soil. And that would, if it were widely used in, uh, in say maize or corn, we could stop the anthropogenic emissions of nitrous oxide from agriculture overnight in one season, once this were widely adopted and that would give us a pause in the increase in temperature of uh, the earth for a few years so that we could get more of a handle on, on a carbon free economy. And uh, these plants would even remove some of the nitrous oxide that's already in our atmosphere. Uh, through their through their leaves, so we've uh, so th- this has been attempted years ago, but the nitrous oxide reductase is a peculiar kind of enzyme. And it, by the way, it's the only enzyme known to act on nitrous oxide. There are no other degradation processes for nitrous oxide other than nitrous oxide reductase. So, to get it expressed and operating in plants, it. It won't work in the regular plant cell, regular part of the plant cell, because it's a peculiar part of bacterial metabolism. So the place for nitrous oxide to be, uh, reductase to be expressed is in the mitochondria of plants, because the mitochondria of plants and all of our mitochondria in our bodies is descended from ancient bacteria, and they have the same structure as bacteria. And so they are the place for nitrous oxide to be ex- uh, reductase to be expressed, and recently in the last ten years, we've figured out how to do that, and uh, we can use our normal genetic transformation technologies and and target the nitrous oxide re- reductase components to the mitochondria, so that they should be expressed in there. Just like we can do that same genetic modification of bacteria with the nitrous oxide reductase. That has been done for many years. So we should be able to do this, and we're trying to get funding for it, and it could be a very important way for us to slow down global warming for a while while we get a handle on the most important greenhouse gas, CO2.
0: Well, crop plants are nice because you would have fields and fields of plants that are scrubbing that the gases from the environment, as they do for carbon dioxide. But most of your work is done in tobacco. Why do you choose that system?
1: Yes, well, tobacco is very easily transformed. It's one of the lab rats of uh, biotechnology. Uh, And we had transformed tobacco with all of these uh, uh, enzymes quite a while ago. And it occurred to us uh, recently that maybe we should be thinking more about tobacco, uh, we had been afraid of tobacco because of the, the regulatory problems. But then we realized that there really are fewer regulatory problems for tobacco because it really doesn't grow outdoors in the wild anywhere in the world, except perhaps in its native range in Argentina, southern uh, South America. But elsewhere, there are, there are no uh, reports of wild growing tobacco. So there's nothing to cross with. Uh, so, uh, that seems to not be important. So tobacco has many advantages. S- since it is, it does flower and it is sexual, it, you can cross it and you can get more gene copies of your detoxifying gene in the, uh, in the offspring, in the hybrid of the, of the, that cross. And that means that your act, the activity of these, uh, Uh, Enzymes should be higher in in those hybrids, hybrid vigor. Um, The uh, and that is important because our plants, even though they're much better than wild type plants at removing compounds from these compounds from the air, they are still not quite good enough for this to be a small, compact uh, setup that will really clean the air effectively in your home. Uh, in fact, our pathos ivy requires quite a large unit, almost a full cubic meter of, uh, of heavy foliage in order to, with air moving through it, in order to remove the toxins from the air. And that's an important point, Kevin. The, these plants really need to be in some sort of a, uh, mechanical setup with a fan to move the air over the foliage in order for them to have good contact with the air in the room. So, having the plants over in a corner sitting outside a box with just the foliage, that's nice. And they would have some small effect, but it's not going to thoroughly clean the air in your room. Um, so in order to have enough effect, you need a more powerful plant and we can get at that with tobacco and it will be much more of a problem with pothos because we can't sexually cross pothos because it doesn't flower. So uh, we're looking at tobacco. We think that tobacco in a box, uh, uh, like a miniature greenhouse in the home with a fan blowing air across it, would be acceptable to people. And tobacco has a, a rather attractive flower. It Itself, its foliage is not very attractive, but the flower is. And the flower also has a wonderful aroma, uh, uh, like jasmine flowers. And so uh, we think it's... Possible that it could be acceptable in the home if it were enclosed in a box. Uh, and uh, with air blowing across it, perhaps combined with a particle filter, you'd have a complete uh, air cleaning unit in that way. But it's important that we think of ways to increase the activity within the plant tissue. And perhaps the tobacco will be a way to do that. So we're already uh, developing... Uh, Uh, second-generation tobacco plants that have uh, these genes in it for the degradation of these toxins, including formaldehyde and benzene and and chloroform. Uh, And we have two different tobaccos that have been transformed, and then when those are crossed, they're going to produce hybrids that have uh, two to four times the activity of just a single gene copy alone.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. So, But you also have the neighbor of petunia, which is very similar to tobacco and also easily transformable. Maybe a little bit different foliage, um, you know, in terms of maybe certain surface area per plant. But um, have you thought about that because of the stigma that travels with tobacco?
1: Well, maybe. Uh, No, we haven't actually thought about petunia. You're right about that. I don't think it has as much leaf area per plant as tobacco does, but there might be ways to overcome that.
0: Yeah, yeah, lots of little leaves. It comes to mind because I uh, do a lot of teaching in in public schools and uh, grade schools, and I have gone to grade schools and shown pictures of plants that are doing different things in the light, and I show one very classic picture of a tobacco plant in red and red and far red conditions to show shade avoidance responses. And um, I did it for years. And one year, one kid asked, what kind of plant is that? And I said, tobacco. And the whole class went,
1: ooh. (laughs)
0: Like, you know, here's the...
1: (laughs) Well, well, there are low nicotine varieties of tobacco that are well-known and and readily available uh, that are natural, unmodified tobacco. There is also... modified tobacco that has no nicotine or low nicotine, mm-hmm. but there are natural varieties of tobacco breeding goes way back and there are a lot of varieties of tobacco and one of the one or two more or more of those strains are low to no nicotine at all or alkaloids of any sort so they're non-toxic. Tobacco itself really isn't toxic uh, except that it does have the nicotine and nicotine is uh, toxic and addictive so we want to avoid the nicotine uh and there are ways to do that
0: yeah and you've been really talking about this for a while i know the work was published a while ago we talked about in this podcast um i've seen articles in popular press how has the public really responded in general to this innovation
1: well i've gotten a lot of positive response from the public uh a lot of people have written to me uh, cold uh, emails Uh, asking when they can purchase this plant, or uh, can I send it to them? And of course, we can't do that yet because of the regulatory issues Uh, and also the IP issues. The University of Washington has uh, patented the idea of using these genetically modified plants in combination with a miniature greenhouse-slash-wind tunnel. Uh, So they're interested in protecting their IP. Uh, but we have licensed uh, this plant to two Canadian companies uh, who are uh, developing the plants for uh, large-scale installations like living walls, uh, installations in, uh, say, the lobbies of office buildings and that kind of thing, uh, in, in order to clean the air there uh, and uh, to have uh, basically a talking point uh, and so on. They're also interested in... Uh, in marketing these to the domestic market, but they haven't been able to get investors interested. Uh, they tell me, uh, these companies uh, that have been uh, approaching venture capitalists, that the venture capitalists are not convinced that the public will want these plants in their homes. So that has to be demonstrated. You ha- we have to prove it before we can move ahead, and I'm not quite sure how to do that. And that's inhibited our ability to raise funds. Quite
0: a bit yeah I can kind of see why because public has stayed inside with um, you know with these volatile gases and really don't see a impact of them at least we don't think we do and it's like radon gas you know for a while there it was front page news but even that kind of fell into the background and I think that there's a communication strategy here in that you're gonna beautify your home with plants anyway why not use ones that can participate in scrubbing the atmosphere. And, and these ideas of um, maybe even home um, gardens where you have these herbs and things that are growing under funny colored lights, you know, these little gardens, uh, you know, maybe there's this could be part of that. You know, this is, this is the one that, that cleans your home while the others make the food. You know, there, there's, a, there's an interesting strategy there somewhere. But um, what do you propose would be a way that maybe this listenership could get involved and maybe support the project or even get in line for seeds if they become available?
1: Well, uh, I'm looking into crowdfunding, but we're going to give that a try. Uh, There are ways uh, to contribute directly as gifts to the University of Washington with that money directed toward our lab. Uh, We can't promise any seeds. Our our, uh, uh, licensing agreements and our uh, rules at the university w- won't allow us to do that aspect of crowdfunding funding. So that's a problem. Uh, but uh, we certainly need funding in the lab. Uh, we're, have, we're having lots of problems with maintaining activities uh, during these difficult times and funding is part of, part of that. Uh, instruments are failing, that kind of thing. So... Uh, uh, we're working on crowdfunding. I'm not sure how well it'll go, but we'll give it a try.
0: Well, yeah, Patreon is very good tool. It's a very good tool. This is what um, the podcast, this podcast is supported by Patreon contributions that allow me to use a producer and then uh, promote the podcast more widely in social media. And it really makes a difference. But the idea is is maybe getting uh, you know, getting um, hundred thousand donors at a dollar each is probably very realistic.
1: Well, we'll give it a try. I uh, I respect the promise of it, uh, and i I hope it'll I hope it'll work out. I hope we can get enough interest in this. Uh, I think that people are not that aware of the indoor air uh, pollution but the professionals certainly are, and it is a major concern to environmental health scientists around the world. The indoor air quality is a big, big problem. Uh, but the public hasn't really recognized that except maybe for particles. Uh, people have, are buying more and more room filters, uh, HEPA filters for their, uh, to remove particles, smoke particles out here in the West uh, have been a problem for a while. And now with the, with the COVID pandemic, uh, removing particles uh that may contain covid from the air of of homes is also being done um, and uh, uh, but the gaseous components haven't received much attention and i think the reason is that people don't like to talk about things problems threats that don't have solutions and really there hasn't been uh practical devices on the market that will remove these gaseous chemicals from the air until our plants. So um, there are, ha, if you try to use activated carbon, for instance, you end up with a huge amount of waste uh, by spent carbon. The carbon rapidly fills up with all kinds of junk in addition to the chemicals you're trying to remove. And then you have to replace that carbon at high expense with a lot of energy cost and regenerating the carbon It's really not sustainable. Our plants grow themselves. Our plants, well, it's an interesting technology plants, right? I mean, it's the technology that gets better and better the longer you support the plant. It's unlike a car, which just deteriorates and falls apart with time. Plants get bigger. So, and better at doing, at doing the process. So it's very sustainable. And, uh, We're enthusiastic about it. Uh, We've got a bit of a sales problem to convince people to worry enough about their indoor air quality to want these plants. But they should be because they are, this is a health problem. Uh, There's little doubt that the benzene and chloroform and formaldehyde in our indoor air are causing cancers in the human population. And we can reduce that with this sort of technology.
0: I really see this catching on more in the arena of the living walls and that kind of thing. Because people in general, I, I can't think of a lot of friends that I know that keep a, a jungle of indoor plants. You know, people don't want one more thing to have to deal with sometimes. And I think that that kind of living wall concept is really going to be attractive with this kind of technology. We just have to find the right journalist to write a really good story in a visible magazine for you. I think that would change things a lot. Have you had any kind of media inquiry from, you know, big uh, outlets or, you know, major papers or magazines?
1: Well, we had last year in 2019, uh, we had quite a bit of publicity and there were articles published about this work all around the world. Uh, And uh, it got a, a pretty large amount of attention. Uh but uh, and from that we, we had these inquiries by these commercial firms and, and two licensees uh that have stepped forward uh and given us some money uh for the license and also some money for research. Uh we have received a small amount of money that supported our research for a little while. Uh so yeah, uh the publicity is always important. It's kind of died away. I'm glad to be back on your program, uh, uh, Kevin. Uh, And we would like to uh, produce more results that would uh, further increase our our, uh, our publicity.
0: Well, what Uh, experiments are happening right now in the lab?
1: Well, our main focus now is the the development of a flow-through system that will allow us to measure the ability of the plants to remove the pollutants at concentrations similar to they are uh, to what they are in the home so uh, instead of very high levels of benzene with a very small reactor uh, we are now using a large reactor with flow through with air flowing through it that would be similar to a unit you might have in the home except it's designed to scientific uh, standards And it will allow us to precisely measure the ability of our plants to remove these pollutants from air with the pollutants at concentrations the same as they are in the home. So, uh, uh, that's our main emphasis. Now we want to make sure that these work as they would be in the home. Um, then the other experiments we're working on are the tobacco experiments to combine, uh, uh, two lines of, of genetically modified tobacco to produce hybrid vigor and a greater activity to test that concept. And finally, uh, we're working on, on verifying the activity of our second generation pothos IV that has formaldehyde degradation in, in addition to benzene and chloroform degradation.
0: Well, there are a lot of people that follow this podcast. And it's one of these things that if you put out a little bit of a notice about... You know, here's where you could send support or here's where, you know, we could uh, get you on a list for seeds when they happen or, you know, who knows how this may work. But is there a place where they could go online to learn more and maybe follow this or maybe contribute to the effort?
1: Well, I'm developing a, uh, an Instagram page and a Facebook uh, page. Uh, they're still in an early stage of development. They're, the title is for both of them is uh, Plants Enhanced. Plants enhanced.
0: That's really great because I think that's something that there would be some interest in this. It sounds like a really cool project and the other benefit of this is that you're using genetic engineering in plants to do something that can improve the human condition. And I know for me, diffusing the arguments that this is somehow the devil's science has been something I've been plagued with now for three decades and to have a really good use it's really hard to argue against uh, is, is something that you're working on. And it's something that I would love to support. Well, Dr. Stuart Strand, really a pleasure to talk to you again. It's an exciting project. I hope people are excited to follow it and maybe contribute to it. Um, and thank you very much for being a guest again.
1: Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and an honor to be on your podcast. I, I, uh, I'm i hopeful that this will get us more publicity for our, our technology. We think can provide a lot of benefit for me.
0: And so that's on all of you as listeners. You know, share this story. Get people to be aware of the fact that we live in sealed boxes full of funny molecules that can do bad things, and uh, folks like Dr. Strand have engineered plants to remove those. It's not just a possible uh, benefit to human health, it's also a great benefit to science as we're showing ways in which technology can be used to do something that's very good for all of us. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be talking to you again next week.
2: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.